Hey everybody, and welcome to a new episode of the Jeff Macalino Podcast. Hopefully you are enjoying the new uh, change-up to the podcast. I'm not sure which uh, episode this will be because I've got a cluster of guests. Uh, fortunately for the podcast with guests, uh, it looks like I'll be able to start recording them maybe a month or two even before they come out to you. But I'll keep. Uh, I'll try to keep uh, relatively uh, current as far as the solo ones that I do, so that my. Uh, Stories and material stay fresh for whatever is going on. <laughs> uh, I, I thought about backlogging a bunch of those, and then I thought I could just gloss over a major world event or something silly like that, and I'd look like a fool. So I'll try to keep those current. Those are obviously shorter and don't need to be planned so far ahead. So today on the podcast, I have R. Scott Edwards. Now, he owned a chain of comedy clubs for over 20 years. Uh, he produced TV stage concert comedy uh, with legends including Jay Leno, Dana Carvey, uh, this guy named Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Bob Saget, and many, many, many more comedians. Uh, he now does some uh, coaching. He also co-wrote a book um, that he actually sent me. Prior to this interview, um, be a stand-up comic, uh, which has been a good read uh, and very generous of him to send that. Frankly, that's one thing I keep finding amazing is how many people in comedy are very happy to help uh, people trying to get started. Uh, you know, I haven't yet run into the mean competitive people, probably because I'm a nobody. But nonetheless, uh, almost every guest I've had, uh, you know, in the comedy world uh, has been more than generous with their time, with offering to help with other stuff if I need it, giving me advice. It is uh, touching to see uh, how much uh, people in comedy are willing to embrace people trying to get into comedy. Uh, and Mr. Edwards will be an interesting guest. I think I'm actually recording this before interviewing him. I'd like to change that up now and then. Um, but I am uh, doing this before I interview him. Um, but it would be interesting because he has a little more maybe of the business side of things that he might be able to uh, uh, open up about and guaranteed that he has tons of excellent stories. Uh, there's something in his bio about having a picture of Gary Shandling and Bob Saget in a dress. So we'll see if we get to that story on the podcast. Anyways, do the things I always tell you to do to spread the podcast, and I will love you forever. Uh, hope you enjoy it. I will see you at the end. All right, now welcome to the podcast, R. Scott Edwards. How are you? Hey, great to be here, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me on your uh, amazing show. I've been listening to several of them. I'm excited to be here. Wait a minute. It's Scott Edwards. Thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you. 
All right, that's enough of that. All right, good. So the first time I've gotten a cheer during my podcast, and it wasn't for me. <laughs> I, uh, I was, uh, well, let's, let's dive into your background. Let's start there. Um, so you owned a chain of comedy clubs for over 20 years. Um, started my first club in 1980, long before you were born, and uh, it was the 12th full-time comedy club in the whole United States at the time. I was very lucky. I was able to catch uh, stand-up comedy before the real big wave. So when I opened, there was 12 rooms in the country. By 1985, just five years later, it was like Starbucks. There was a comedy club in every corner because every nightclub and old disco converted to comedy. But I, I was ahead of them and was well established by then. What what uh, what was the desire to get into comedy? Or yeah, it's actually an interesting story in the sense that I had no desire at all. Mm. <laughs> Uh, what it is, is I was selling life insurance and actually hated it. Uh, I was successful at it, but I didn't like it. I was a young man, uh, 23 years old, selling life insurance, and there's no fun going up to people and saying, hey, you're going to die someday. You want to leave money to other people? But uh, I ended up on vacation with my uh, then-girlfriend, soon-to-be wife, soon-to-be ex-wife, and we were down in Los Angeles, and my dad, who's got a great sense of humor, said, hey, you ought to go by the comedy store. There's a new satellite location just on just off the UCLA campus in Westwood. So we did. We went by, and that first night we saw Sandra Bernhardt, Dave Coulier, and several mm-hmm. other acts. And I turned to my girlfriend, and I said, man, we need something like this in Sacramento. How fun was this? And after the show, I introduced myself to the acts, and we started talking. I collected a few phone numbers. And the next day, drove home, quit my job, went bankrupt to get rid of all my debt. And it took about eight months to negotiate a uh, space and open up. uh, I actually, my first show was uh, August 8th of 1980. Oh, wow. Wow. So it's been a a while. Yeah, but but it was a lot of fun. And uh, I... The good news was I was able to meet people like Dave Coulier, Bob Saget, Gary Shandling, these different people, and they kind of taught me the best way to run a club, which was to respect the talent, the artist, and uh, I didn't pay him a lot, but we treated him well. And uh, just to give you an idea of how lucky my start was, my very first show on August 8th of 1980, the opening act, making $150 for the whole week was Gary Shandling. Wow. It was his first outside of his hometown of Phoenix road gig that he'd ever done. I had Peter DePaula as a magician in the middle. I used a lot of magic in the between the acts. And my headliner was none other than George Wallace, who is a uh, world-class comic, had his own theater and show in Vegas for over 12 years. Very, very funny guy. And that was my first show, my first experience in comedy. And it, it was just an amazing, really lucky start. Well, that's what it, it seems like. It's a combination. Uh, you know, obviously working hard is important, but it seems like everyone needs a lucky break here or there. I don't think there are, uh, and may, I'm thinking this more from a comedian lens even than, than a comedy club, but I think the same would probably go for both. 
I mean, I, I would imagine if someone had the perfect plan to start a comedy club and it opened in March of 2020, they might have had some problems, even if they did everything right. Um, oh, yeah. There's a learning curve to everything. And I was so young. I was 24 at the time. It, I am a bit of an entrepreneur. This was actually my third company. I started my first when I was 17. So I had some idea of how to start a company, but I knew nothing about owning a club. And you were, you were saying it's a bit of work, so if you don't mind me extrapolating, Please. I was able to negotiate the free use of a banquet room for a big restaurant in the tourist area of Sacramento, but there was a ton of work because every day they would have a banquet, I would have to go in, break down the banquet, set up my comedy club, do the door, collect the money, seat the patrons, and then run on stage to be the MC. And then after the show, I had to break down my nightclub because they were going to do a, another banquet the next day. And that went on for over uh, a year and a half. I mean, it was a lot of work and no employees in the beginning, so it was just me. But it gave me a grounding of what it was going to take to succeed in comedy. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny when I have told some of my friends and family how much uh, time, how I've, I've just kind of laid out my schedule since I've started doing the podcast and doing open mics and everything. And it's like I wake up, if I, if I have my kids, I wake up at 5.30 in the morning and I don't stop working until 9 o'clock at night, maybe 11 o'clock at night. If I don't have the kids, I'll wake up at 7.55 and I'll work until 11 p.m. every day. Well, it's you, you, you have a, a, a harder schedule than me. I was one of those uh, people that once I was in the comedy industry, I didn't get up until the crack of noon every day, but I was working nightclub hours. I didn't right. go to bed until about 3, 4 in the morning. So um, that was my life for over 20 years. I would go to bed 3, 4 in the morning, get up at the crack of noon, hit the office, work until the show, MC the shows, party a little bit after the shows. And the, I was really lucky. I mean, it was a, a lot of fun and a lot of work. But uh, uh, being in the nightclub business, it tends to uh, have a different schedule. <laughs> yeah. Like having kids. Now, I had kids at the time. But uh, like I mentioned, I uh, soon had an ex-wife. And uh, 18 months of marriage, 18 years of payments. Yay! Uh, but uh, oh, I should I should eighteen uh, months of marriage, eighteen years of payments. <laughs> it was not fun, but uh, you know you get through it and you live and learn. Um, about uh, two years into that banquet room, I had saved up enough money and negotiated. I leased a basement level space uh, in that same tourist area, and that's where I opened up basically my main very successful club and uh, again I got in with the right people so we had the right talent coming through and I, I decided early on I was going to be in a room so how many open mics have you done are you going out every week I am now uh, I'm going tomorrow so I did the first couple open mics I did were not at comedy clubs so they were following a, a bad guitar player and a sad poet and then I'd go up and make five minutes of dick jokes, and everyone laughed because it was just different and, and awkward, if they were paying attention, you know, like a outside bar kind of scene. Um, so I've only actually done two now inside a comedy club. 
Um, and I'm going to be find a more receptive audience there, Jeff. I will tell you that con- what you've done is taking comedy back to the way it started. A lot of people don't remember because they're uh, too young, but in the '60s and '70s, stand-up comedy was basically the intermission between either strippers or jazz clubs or jazz bands yep. at various clubs. There was no pure comedy club at the time. It wasn't respected that way as an art form, and so. You know, Shecky Green and Joan Rivers and some of those early stand-up comics would basically be the break uh, between jazz bands or strippers at a strip club. And uh, when, after the big boom in the mid-80s and early 90s of comedy, where every Tom, Dick, and Harry thought he could have a comedy club, a lot of people like you were cutting their teeth and learning to build their set by playing to really difficult audiences you know restaurant or bar audiences are the hardest way to go but a good training ground because once you get to a comedy club where a patron has invested money paid a cover charge in the entertainment for the evening they're going to pay attention they're invested in the evening and they want you to succeed and those are situations that really can help you grow as an entertainer so I, I recommend get on stage as much as you can, anywhere you can, and uh, develop and write on a regular basis. Yeah, I uh, I had somebody pointed out, they're like, I ended up writing stand-up. I've been doing it for over a year now without performing it. So I've got books full of material that's like, oh, I should, I, I need to, I've got a lot in there uh, as opposed to someone who you, I was prepared to go up and when COVID broke out and everything got shut down for a bit. <laughs> right, right. It's been a rough year. It, it really changed the um, platform to work from. But you really have done the hard part first because mm-hmm. a lot of people have the personality or the interest to get on stage and they get up there and they have nothing to say and then they just start swearing or doing crazy stuff just to shock the audience. If you're a writer and you're good at it, you want to go through that material and take chunks of it, take it up on stage, test it out, decide what works, what doesn't work, tweak what you need to tweak. And sooner than other people, Jeff, you'll have a, a set, which in the comedy club world means you need about 15 minutes, which is a long time on stage, uh, and, and build from there. Now, most open mics for your listeners should know that they're three to five minute stage time. So building up to a 15 minute set allows you to become an opening act and actually make some money. So that's that should be your initial goal. You know, what's funny is, again, this is where I I think the length of time I've been writing and planning things. I would do a voice memo on my phone and the bit I thought was the strongest bit and uh, uh the reason I went with this one is it was a clean, mostly clean. I think I said ass or something, but I, you know, I was the, by far the cleanest person at that open mic. Uh, but I did it on my phone with all the jokes and everything, and it was 15 minutes, and I had to cut it down to five. So what I did, the problem was it was a story. So I right. took all the jokes out and just told the story. <laughs> so <laughs> I got off. Over as well. well, I got off stage, and they laughed at the end. Um, but I only, fortunately, a friend was there to record it on video, so I watched it back, and I'm like, I only attempted seven jokes in five minutes, where the other comics were, you know, attempting ten jokes a minute, 
and I was just a, I, I laid out, you know, the story and there was a good two minutes where there were no jokes in it. Um, and I got, I got laughter at the end where it was intended to, but at the time I'm thinking, I thought this was hilarious and they only laughed a little bit at the end, but that was my fault, well, not theirs. <laughs> right, right. But you know, a lot of comics think of, uh, laughs per minute, LPM mm -hmm. laughs per minute is what people are going for. However, there's some very successful comics like Larry Miller that w could tell a 20 minute story and have the audience riveted, but it's true. There'd be comedy throughout that story. And then of course at the end, there was a huge response because the whole 20 minute bit was just incredible. So having a long story bit is not a bad way to go. And you did notice in a comedy club audience, they sat there and listened, right? A lot of comics are afraid if I quit talking, the people will leave. <laughs> and that doesn't happen. They're there to be entertained. Um, and my only advice is you did exactly what you should have done, which is record or tape your sets. Because by watching them back, you'll learn where you could have changed some verbiage or added something or dropped something. And if you do that enough times, what you end up is you go from a piece of coal to a diamond. You know, and then you have that to always jump onto in the future. So what my recommendation to open micers like you is you want to find one or two bits that you know are going to work. You close with your strongest, open with your second strongest, and then try new crap in the middle. And the, the goal is that if you lose the audience, you know you can get them back. And having that confidence, having that in your knapsack of, of material will help you get through a good set or a bad set and, and it sounds like you're well on your way and if you've been planning and working on this for a year you're going to be well ahead of the guys that are just going up to jerk around and I'm going to take it one more step I want to say I'm proud of you that you want to try to work clean I know in this day and age uh, and one of the reasons I got out of the business is comedy was going down that road where, you know, God, I went to the frickin' store to get some frickin' bread because it was frickin' Tuesday. And, yeah, the audience reacts because they're hearing a lot of swearing, but that's not humor. That's not funny. They're not going to remember you two minutes later. Um, if you're writing material that actually is funny, I'm not saying it has to be squeaky clean, but, you know, if you're going to use the F-bomb, make sure there's a reason. Right. right. If you're going to do it, you know, I, a guy named Jack Marion was one of the funniest guys on the road back in the 80s and 90s and one of the filthiest. But he rarely swore. He was just talking about sex in a very intimate way and very successful, very funny and still didn't have to rely on, you know, F-bombs. I mean, that's really the, the cheap out. Right. Uh, the other thing, Jeff, and, and you can educate me on this if you don't mind me asking. Um, I was on stage almost every night for over 21 years. I've probably had more stage time than any comic entertainer. And one of the reasons I sold my club and, and kind of, I still work in comedy, but got out of the club business, was the audience was changing in this new kind of woke environment. I'm frightened for the comics because. There's, we're in this day and age where people are offended or afraid somebody else would be offended. And if you're in an audience of 100 or 200 people, there's no way you're going to make all of them laugh all at the same time. And trust me, people always find some reason to be offended. <laughs> yeah. 
how are you as a new comic planning to deal with that or what have you found when you got out and got in front of the audience well i'll tell you um last week uh, and this is a, at a at a uh, comedy club called coconuts and usually the comics outnumber the non-comics usually significantly yeah i mean the first time i went up there were nine non-comics six of them were friends and family of mine uh, and there were 15 they have that moral support yeah well they didn't laugh a lot so. <laughs> well they probably heard you do the material but anyway <laughs> how did the rest of it go or, or well you know the hardest thing is to try to make other comics laugh it, it Right. That's a, one of the difficult parts of being an open micer is a lot of the audience is other entertainers and they're not going to want to support you. And they're, they're, their whole, I mean, my sense of humor is totally different than what my audience was because I've heard it all. So to make me laugh, you really got to go <laughs> way out there. Uh, how did it happen for you last week? Well, last week, the club was full of audience. Oh. In the beginning, there were only six comics signed up, and there were at least thirty to thirty to fifty people in in oh, the room. Great. And so here's the problem: is after the first week, I'm like, okay, a lot of the comics will go up, tell a joke or a premise, and kind of talk a little, and so they'll end the joke by saying, "I don't have a punchline for that yet," but they they know <laughs> that the material they said prior to that was funny, and they're not performing for paid audience they're performing for other comedians right. who might see them at the bar later and give them some ideas so i had a few jokes like that including my closing joke it was funny but i didn't have a, a punchline to really hammer it home <laughs> so luckily i i was able to get in and out of it with the middle of the joke just being the the punchline uh and then i did talk to some comics at the bar afterwards but i made a change to what i prepared to say in that set because there was a group of very, right in the front, a group of uh, uh, overweight women, and they were laughing hysterically. They were the best audience members out there. And I had a joke. It was about being divorced and being single and trying to date on these dating apps. And I had a bit I was going to talk about. And, and it's based on real-life experience with these dating apps where, you know, the, the, the girls hold, them, yeah. hold the phone up like this. And you'll look at four pictures be like, it's a beautiful girl. And then you look at a fifth picture from down here, and it looks like she ate those four girls. <laughs> and I'm That's like... That's a good line. I'm like, I, I, yeah, I think it's funny. And I think any guy who's ever gone on these dating apps would absolutely... But I'm like, I don't want to offend them. And I don't know, that I, they probably wouldn't have been, but it wasn't worth the no, risk. because that's innocuous enough that you, were, you weren't targeting them. You were talking about dating apps, which everybody can relate to. And being a new comic, my biggest rule is you want to be able to relate to the audience. That's why so many comedians talk about driving or flying in airplanes or staying in hotels, because everybody's done it sometime or being married or having a girlfriend. That's that's material that people can relate to. So I would have suggested doing the bit. I think it would have been fine. Yeah, and I'll I'll pull it. I'll definitely keep that in the in the bag for next time because I think it was a good line. I, and that leads to another interesting. I thought it was a good line. Yeah, yeah. I think it. I think it works. That whole bit was based on something. And this this is going to lead into a question where I'm assuming you might have some stories uh, with things in the past where there may have been some friction between comedians. But I'm always so worried when I have a great premise in my head, I think, 
I can't be the first one who's thought of this ever, but I've never heard anyone say it, so I'm I'm always, I'm more nervous than I should be probably about it. But so the the lead off to my set was I talked about being single a little bit. I made some jokes, got some laughter going, and then I said, well, technically, I can't self-identify as single. Any form or survey you fill out, you have to check the box for divorced, because single, married, divorced, widowed. I'm like, divorced is just being single with an asterisk that says, I made a big mistake at least one time in my life. And while I'm... Great stuff, Jeff. Yeah, and, and while I'm saying it, and everyone loves it, and even that's one that I first tried out not even as a joke but I went went on a rant to my mother who doesn't who only likes clean stuff and she laughed hysterically at it I'm like okay if I got her laughing I think I got something here but in the back of my mind I'm like I think I'm the I'm I've never heard anyone joke about that but you'd well, think <laughs> so as a as a professional that's been around comedy for 40 years I will tell you that there's rarely anything you'll come across that hasn't been tried or said or done. It all matters on who's saying it, how they present it. But just like uh, doing material about having your car break down, there's been thousands of acts that have done material on that. But everybody approaches it from a slightly different point of view or has a different punchline or a different setup. So don't be afraid to try things. As long as you're not out and out stealing a, a bit, you know, Robin Williams, who worked for me a couple times, uh, was famous for having to pay off people because his mind was so eclectic that if he heard a mm. bit at a, from another comic, he'd go to the next club and it would just come out. And it wasn't on purpose. He wasn't trying to steal material, but his mind would collect so much information. And then you saw how high energy was on stage when he was banging out the material sometimes things that he heard from other comics would come out well he always owned up to it and he would pay him for the bit but it happens just don't do it on purpose and as far as uh, that particular line of comedy i thought it was very funny and again it's something a lot of people can relate to and you had it coming from a place in your life so uh, a lot of entertainers don't realize that you're going to come across better to the audience if there's a little realism, uh, there's some truth to what you're saying. Uh, so, in other words, it would be harder for you to do a joke about a car breaking down if you've never had your car break down. Right. Right. So, talking about divorce, obviously you've been through it, and so you're sharing and displacing the pain by making it funny. Well, trust me, based on U.S. statistics, you know, 30 to 40% of the people in the audience have either been through a divorce or their parents are divorced or they've heard of a divorce. It's probably more like 80%. It's So you're talking about something everybody can relate to, and that's so important. Also want to recommend a lot of people think that you have to memorize everything. And as an open micer, I can tell you that even Paula Poundstone would go on stage with three by five cards. Now, you don't write out the whole bit, but you have key phrases or a key word that reminds you to do a bit that you want to try something new and you can set them on the stool up on stage with you or you can actually hold them and say hey you know people love honesty in the audience you know hey audience i got some new stuff do you mind if i try it they're always going to go yeah sure and you could just read the jokes you know and and see what really works and then when you're done say hey man thanks a lot i'm going to i'm going to be that much funnier next time you see me <laughs> you know yeah i mean uh, 
people don't think you can do that, but it is okay. And unless you're on TV, there's no reason to feel like uh, you can't try new stuff. I mean, I've seen uh, somebody like Bob Saget, you know, who can do hours of material, stop in the middle and say, oh, geez, I had a couple ideas. Let me try this. And he'll literally read them off and then go back into a set. So if Bob Saget and Paula Poundstone can get away with it, I think you can yeah, probably, probably, especially in front of a nine audience member, <laughs> two thirds of which were were my my crowd. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, when I owned the club, uh, some of my, you know, we we were open six, seven nights a week, so there was plenty of nights that we would have uh, small crowds, and our minimum was ten paying customers. If we had less, we'd give them free passes and invite them back. But we did plenty of shows in the front bar, in the front lounge, to 10, 12, 14, 15 people. And sometimes those are the best shows because it's so intimate that the comics would literally just sit down and have a conversation with the audience. And funny things came out that weren't even a part of their show. And that's something I would also recommend to all open micers and to yourself, Jeff, is you want to develop that comfort level that even without material, you can interact with the audience. You know, a, a great example would be, you know, so, hey, you know, what do you do for a living? And then, you know, well, I work at a car wash. Well, that's soapy. I mean, you know, oh, wait. <laughs> that's a bad line. But the, the point is you um, need to learn that comfort level because yeah. the next step after being an open micer is you want to MC a show where you're the pro, keeping the pace and the energy up, and a lot of that's just interacting with the audience. You know, hey, ladies and gentlemen, we got some great food here and some drink specials. Be sure to tip the waitresses. Oh, go ahead and push them all the way over. You know, <laughs> I mean, just little things that will keep the energy up and keep the audience attention. I should mention, uh, if you don't mind me doing a quick plug, of um, I have a podcast, Stand Up Comedy, your host and MC. It's on all the directories, Apple, iHeart, uh, uh, Spotify, Pandora, but uh, Pandora, sorry. Um, and I'm mentioning it because it's a great guide that could be helpful to people like you because most of the shows are live stage entertainment from the famous and not so famous. But I also, every other week, interview a professional entertainer. And they all talk about their beginning and how they got started in comedy. And Jeff, what I think you'll find if you listen to two or three of them is that their start, to, and we're talking, you know, the one that just launched uh, yesterday was Will Schreiner. He had his own show, a huge comic, huge actor, Will Schreiner, very nice guy. But a lot of these people started just like you're starting now, you know, open mics, emceeing, getting stage time anywhere they can because that's how you become a pro. Yeah, and it's uh, it's definitely uh, paying your dues and, and just getting stage time. Uh, you know, to, it, was e it was easy in the head until you actually go up there. And it's funny, you mentioned uh, earlier, you mentioned up 15 minutes is an eternity. And the funny thing is, I, I think I went up there as probably most stand-up comics do not do uh, open micers. And I thought five minutes went by in ten seconds. Uh, I'm like, I didn't have. I, there's not enough time for me to to, to do this, um, which maybe is an advantage that, that I that I'm that way um, because it, it seems to me. See, I, I think I I 
I was going to make a joke, but I thought no one in the audience will sympathize except for the comics. I was going to say, now I know how women feel when they have sex with me. Five minutes seems like a marathon to one person, and the other person's thinking that was over really fast. <laughs> so... <laughs> perfect perfect yes but see that's the kind of joke that would have worked jeff i would have said that's a great way to to get the uh um attention of the audience because everybody can relate to it uh all men think we're marathon runners and all women go you know you're mr quick start you know uh <laughs> quick stop but uh uh you know by doing that and referencing how the time passes is real and it's something that not only the other comics, but the audience can relate to because when an open micer or an opening act goes up and they think they have 15 minutes worth of material, two things will happen, which is kind of they work against each other. If you're really doing well, laughter takes time and you want to mm -hmm. stop and let the audience react. But also, especially when you're an open micer, you have that adrenaline going and you tend to talk faster. And one of the things I mentioned in my book, be a stand-up comic or just look like one, is slow down and pace yourself. Again, the audience won't leave, so no reason to rush through your material. It should be kind of like a conversation with 150 strangers. <laughs> you know, a little give and take and at a good pace and you want to enunciate and, and use the mic system. I can't tell you how frustrating it would be when some open mic or even some professional comics would get up on stage and walk away from the mic and start just yelling at the audience. <laughs> and that, that, that it's just not right because the microphone and the lights in your face, that's what gives you control of the room. And if you give up control, trust me, someone in the audience will take it. Yeah. The last thing you want to deal with as an opening actor and as a, an open micer is hecklers. Right. Right, and I so don't. I open the door. Keep control yeah. of the stage. I don't think I, I would handle it well. Luckily, I haven't had one yet. Um, but e e even uh, even last week, I, I said something about being single, and one of the women I mentioned, she she responded like, "Yeah," and I had, <laughs> which got a laugh, and I had no idea how to respond. I fumbled a few words out of my mouth that kind of didn't make any sense, and then I just went on with my act. Right, right, right. No, you just want to practice a little bit, getting quicker on your feet. And there's nothing wrong when it comes to heckle lines to using the old mainstays. You know, uh, hey, I don't come down to your job and knock the burger out of your hand, or you know, or take you know, or take the mop out of your hand. I mean, you know, there's different uh, jokes, and, and if you uh, uh, listen to stand-up comedy enough, you'll hear all the professionals throw out some of the old standbys. Um, when it comes to heckler lines but i don't like the entertainer to even give up the control of the stage there's a reason you have the lights on you there's a reason you have a sound system there's a reason you're up there and that is to get the audience to focus and listen and hopefully be entertained but it sounds like you're off to a great start jeff congratulations well thank you thank you i uh for as much preparation as gone into it i i uh you know, I I feel like I should be starting out relatively well. <laughs> it was well, just doing it is uh, is a good start. And if you uh, read the book I sent you and and get some practice in and um, you know formulate outline your set before you go on stage and then repeat. You know that's the other big mistake in uh, open micers. They think they have to do new material every night. 
No, it's a new audience every night. Right. The, the gift of the pros have is that they'll tell a joke they've told a thousand times, and yet it sounds like, oh, I just thought of this. And that's where the acting comes in, and that's why a lot of them become actors. You want to present the material like you just thought of it, but you want to use material that you've written and you've honed and you've practiced and you've got the timing down. Boy, timing. I'm sure you're realizing how important it is to, you know, certain jokes. You want to take that pregnant pause Mm -hmm. or, or you want to raise your voice. You know, you want to do something to sell the bit. And, um, and that's a lot of, you know, that's really what it is. You need to sell yourself to the audience and provide them a product. And in this case, it's comedy. Uh, but uh, you got a great start. I'm sure that you'll do really well. But as I've said, practice, practice, practice. Yeah, no, and I, I think after last week's experience with having, and I, some of the other comics said, I, I've got to change my material into polished stuff because we've actually got a crowd. Um, so they kind of went <laughs> That's with their. So funny. Yeah. Oh, now I'll be a professional. There's people here. Well, and yeah, instead of doing the the laugh per minute, they'll actually do a set that's like five coherent minutes as opposed to just throwing out 50 jokes. Um, and, and honestly, they the everyone across the board compared to the week before was so much better because they skipped the 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 experimental stuff. Uh, I only had one set prepared, so I just had to try to make punchline work. I only had one instance. Because one thing someone told me is re- if, if someone in the audience can video it, make sure they record it. Otherwise, record it when put your phone on the stool and record it so you can listen back to it. And I yeah, only had one instance. Recordings are fine. You just, yeah. yeah, you just need to hear it. Um, I'll tell you that uh, one of the uh, great acts that I got to work with early on came to me as a featured act. He wasn't a headliner at the time. was Dana Carvey. Mm. And Dana had a way of blending in his caricatures and his voices that you later saw on Saturday Night Live um, with uh, the audience, with the material that he would do to keep the audience motivated. And then, of course, he had a lot of music. Um, I was really lucky. He and his brother had a band before he was a straight stand-up. And he he brought his brother's band up to uh, Laughs Unlimited, my club, and he played Chopping Broccoli live on my stage a good two years before Saturday Night Live and it was so great because he had his brother's full band and he brought up a couple backup singers which were really just the girlfriends of the band members but an experience that at the time and luckily we got it on tape I have a video of it was just an amazing sharing of something that was soon to be world famous you know in, in 1983 when he did it nobody knew and in 1985, he's on Saturday Night Live doing Chopping Broccoli, and it's like, oh, wow, you know. <laughs> uh, a quick side story, uh, Dana worked for me quite a bit in those days. He became a headliner really quick, and one night uh, after the show, we're sitting in a jacuzzi together, and he goes, you know, Scott, I just got a phone call from Lauren Michaels. They want me in New York. I might get Saturday Night Live. Oh, wow. And he was <laughs> excited and scared at the same time but I was so honored to be sharing that information with them literally within hours of getting the call to go. So it was really cool. Wow. That is, that is, that's a, that's a moment right there. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's why I wanted to share it. It's like one of those things that, uh, you want to, uh, 
have in your back pocket forever as a memory. And it was uh, just, uh, I've been blessed by several moments like that. Um, Another one that was uh, really exciting to work with, he came on as an opening act, and his name is Yakov Smirnov, famous Russian comic. And you might be a little too young, but everybody that uh, knew the uh, Reagan era and stuff, uh, Yakov Smirnov was a Russian comic. When he worked for me, he barely spoke English. He was an opening act. He had used to do comedy on the cruise ships in the Black Sea of Russia, came over to the U.S. and literally learned English by watching television. Wow. And his act was all about that transition from... uh, Russia to the U.S., but he ended up being a world-famous act. He has his own theater in Branson, Missouri now, but Yakov Smirnov got a start as an opening act on my stage, and being able to work with somebody like that and see him grow to the success he had, uh, he performed for several presidents, uh, did uh, just uh, the correspondence dinner for uh, the president. I mean, very, very talented guy, and to watch that grow from just coming off the ship from Russia was exciting. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Well, ho- hopefully in 10 years you'll be telling this story. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's definitely, wait a minute. Yes, yes. I had a chance to meet Jeff before he was Jeff. You know? <laughs> his, his hair was really long. That's, uh, so true. No, no, but you know, those things happen. You never know. Who's going to to make it or not make it? I can uh, list several acts that I think are amongst the funniest, cleanest, uh, and they've had great 30-plus-year careers doing stand-up comedy, but they never got that break to become famous. You know, I was able to work with Leno and Saget and Coulier and Carvey and Poundstone, and I can go on and on and on, Robin Williams, um, and we all know those names. But there's some very funny guys... Uh, Larry Wilson, comic magician extraordinaire, Steve Bruner, uh, Tim Bedore, Tom McTeague, um, that all have had amazing careers, made a good living in comedy, but they're not household names. It is really true, only maybe one half of 1% become so famous that you can say Leno and everybody knows who you mean. But I got a chance to work with literally dozens of people uh, as funny as Leno that just don't have uh, all his reputation. Although he was amazing to work with. I used to do a uh, once a year concert on Thanksgiving Eve with uh, Jay. And like the opening act was Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, these were amazing concerts back in the mid 80s. And Leno, one time we had a sold out theater, over 2000 people did an hour and a half of material without stopping. I mean, it was just incredible. Wow. That's yeah, a true professional. And he still goes on stage. He and Seinfeld still do regular uh, gigs at comedy clubs because they love the art form. Yeah, well, Leno is someone who uh, gets brought up by a lot of a lot of people I talk to. As, uh, really? Yeah, it, it's interesting. And uh, I don't want to forget, so I'm, I'm breaking the, the chain of topic a little bit, but I don't want to forget. No, so fine. Robin Williams was... Uh, when I started getting into listening to stand-up comedy, I listened casually as a teenager and everything. It was in my 
early to mid-20s when I started listening. And I would go listen to old Robin Williams stuff and just, it would kill me. <laughs> the thing I always was curious about, and I don't think I've ever talked to someone who actually uh, knew him at all, is when he got off stage, was he just flat or was he the same Robin Williams? <laughs> it, he seemed like a guy who might just be that big ball of energy all the time. Well, uh, the answer is no. Okay. <laughs> he um, was, uh, a lot of people don't realize it, that in show business, it's very common that when you hit the stage, it's like there's an off and on switch mm -hmm. uh, in your brain. Uh, I'm going to tell you a quick side story, and then I'll come back to Robin. Mm -hmm. uh, I was very blessed to be invited to the 100th birthday of Red Skelton. And Red Skelton uh was a world famous actor and comic from the 20s and 30s and I got to meet him uh, very late in life in fact the story is at his 100th birthday uh, there was a huge crowd in an auditorium it wasn't really a theater and uh, he was basically death warmed over and they wheeled him out in a wheelchair and um, his assistant wheeled him up and the microphone was to his right and they're talking about his amazing history and his movies and what uh, uh, energy and comedy and humor Red Skelton had brought to America over several decades. And we're just happy that we're all here to celebrate his birthday. And sadly, he did pass away uh, a few, uh, about six, eight weeks later. But here's the amazing part of the story. Here's this guy that you would have sworn was already gone, sitting in this wheelchair. And they introduced him, ladies and gentlemen, Red Skelton. He jumped up, and when he touched that microphone, it was like a lightning bolt going through his body. Mm. He was 40 years younger. He started walking around. He was doing jokes. He was doing material. He was thanking everybody for being there. There was this electric energy that was going through the microphone, through him and shared with the audience. It was just so amazing to be a part of that. And he said, thank you for coming, God bless. And he let go of the microphone and he fell back into the chair. You would have thought he was dead. Hmm. I mean, the energy of the business and the adrenaline that you hit is, is really magical almost. So bringing that back to Robin Williams and anybody that knows Robin will tell you this, that off stage, he was very quiet, very nice, very approachable. Um, uh, he really supported other comic entertainers. He was always encouraging people. But it wasn't that manic, high-energy pop, pop, pop that you see on stage. He was more down-to-earth and more actually almost shy and reserved. Mm. And I think that the reason is that no human body can go 24-7 at that high energy. I mean, he really gave it to his audience each and every time. In fact, uh, one of the times he played my club, he had just done a concert downtown and he had been on stage for over an hour, left that theater, came over to my club, and for free, jumped up on stage and did another hour with my audience. Wow. He just loved stand-up comedy. And he had the energy when he was on stage that you saw in all his movies and, and, and comedy experiences. But the minute he got back in the green room, it was like 
oh, that was great. You know, thanks for having me. And, you know, like uh, thanking me <laughs> for giving them stage time. And I'm like, oh, no, this has been amazing. You know, I'm, I'm all jazzed up as a producer. I mean, have somebody like Robin Williams drop in on your show. Uh, but th- hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. Uh, the, the energy on stage, um, you're sharing with the audience and the audience shares back with you that energy and uh, whether you're a novice or a true professional, once you get comfortable up there, you'll feel that energy, not only in yourself, but you'll be getting it and giving it with the audience. It's it's a magical art form. Yeah, no, and that's uh, that's uh, one other thing that jumps out to me, um, even as you were talking about Robin Williams, but I've said this multiple times on my podcast, anytime I've reached out to anyone involved in comedy, uh, well, I've gotten a few non-responses, I guess, but uh, for the most part, anyone I've reached out in the comedy industry not only is happy to be like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll give you some time, go on the podcast, uh, they'll, they'll give me things like sending me a book, <laughs> you know? uh, they, will, they will say, hey, if you ever need advice on anything, email me, call me, or it just, it, it's amazing how supportive it seems and you may have stories to contradict that when I, I think maybe comedy is very inviting to the newcomer. Uh, well, I think it's a community. And, yeah. And just like any community, the fast majority of those people want to support you and want to see you succeed. There's always going to be a prima donna here or there that could care less. And there's even a few that might find you threatening or competition. But the reality is, especially amongst the professionals, is we're all in this together. I mean, one of the best communities for entertainment is in Las Vegas and there's like a whole different world that the tourists go to and they see the shows and they see Cirque du Soleil or they go see Amazing Jonathan at a theater or, the, or, or some other big name act but when the entertainers leave the theater guess what they all go meet at some restaurant and have a beer or they're all sharing an experience or a, a material or, or asking questions of each other whether it's a dance troupe or a comedian or a magician, there's a separate little world um, that the public doesn't see. And in the comedy, it's the same. When you go to L.A. and you're at the comedy store at the Improv or you're in New York um, and you're part of the audience, you see the entertainer on stage and then you leave. Well, that entertainer before and after the show is back in the green room or back in some bar hanging with the other entertainers. And what are they talking about? They're talking about the business, you know, right. or, or their material or situations they've had. So I'm, I'm not surprised that you had uh, people trying to support you, at least in the most part, because it is a community and they want to see you succeed. No, and that's that's been probably the most enjoyable aspect of it is you know even even if things flame out you know it 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 does i'm happy for the people in comedy who who are so nice and go above and beyond to to try to help someone right right and it's something that you not only want to take but be sure to give it as well you know if you think of a good punchline or a good um catchphrase or a callback. Callbacks are huge in comedy and can really extend your material. If you think of one for uh, another entertainer, don't be afraid to share it. And then don't be hurt if they don't use it because it's still their material, right. right? But if you offer uh, an idea, 
you're not hurting yourself. They're not competing with you. That you're all in it together, kind of thing. Right. Uh, and you were talking. It's funny. You were talking about small audiences. I wanted to share with your podcast listeners a quick story. I was mentioning how sometimes we would do shows to 10 or 12 people. And I was one time, this is early in the 80s, and everybody knows Gary Shandling. He had the Larry Sanders show in uh, throughout most of the 90s. He had um, uh, the Gary Shandling show itself uh, later in the uh, 80s and uh, famous for The Tonight Show and many other things. Uh, Gary Shandling was on stage as a headliner at this point, And we had a small group of about 15, 20 people. And somebody got up and went to the restroom. And just because Gary got the whole audience to go with him and they followed that person to the bathroom, it happened to be a guy, and they all they crammed about 10 of the people and the rest of the audience were in the hallway. But, but Gary and about 10 of the audience went into the restroom while this guy's trying to do his business and just kept doing jokes. He wasn't, he wasn't making fun of the guy. But he was making the joke that the audience was so small he couldn't afford to lose somebody. So we're all going to go together. <laughs> and it was uh, another really funny memory. That uh, in fact, that's the only time it had happened in the history of my uh, club. But uh, uh, was really exciting and interesting, and shows you how even a big star like Gary Shandling. All they want to do is relate and entertain the audience and whatever that takes. You what? know, if it takes taking them to the restroom to do material, that's what we're going to do. What, what a <laughs> I, boss move that is, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I mean, again, he was really good. So, yeah. I mean, he had the authority on stage to make that happen. You know, there's some comics that may not have been able to pull that off, but uh, uh, he was a, a genius and, and uh, a great memory. Yeah, no, that's uh, and uh, what it was one thing I read that I I promised I wouldn't forget, and I almost did. Uh, uh, <laughs> the picture of uh, Shandling and Saget in a dress. What's the oh, story there? <laughs> yeah. well, that's kind of funny. I still have the pictures. I need to post them on my website. Uh, I haven't done that yet. I do have a website uh, www.standupyourhostandmc.com. And there's great pictures of all these famous entertainers we're talking about, a lot of headshots and in other memorabilia. You should check it out. But uh, uh, so my club was in this tourist area in old Sacramento, Northern California. And right around the corner was one of those uh, photo, old timey photo places where you could go in and dress up as a cowboy or a, mm. uh, a, an, an old timey lawyer or a prairie woman and get a picture taken. A lot of families do it. Well, it was unbeknownst to us, Gary Shandling went over and got dressed up totally in this big hoop, you know, big dress with the big, comes out, you know, they use the hoop so it comes out really big and had a, a fan and was wearing little dainty gloves and he did this pose is an old-timey farm woman from the 1800s or something uh, in a dress and gave it to me as a gift. <laughs> and I was so proud, and, it was, and he had autographed it to me. I put it up on the uh, club wall. Well, about three weeks later, Saget was working the room, and he saw this, and he went over and did the same thing, got dressed up full, full drab uh, and uh, got a picture taken 
in a dress and everything and gave it to me as well. And the two of them, the two pictures sat side by side on my wall for over 20 years. Uh, just great gifts from some uh, guys that really helped make my club happen. So I'm, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here. Cause I, I just, this just popped into my mind as a fun question. So, so sorry, I didn't give you preparation for this. No, but that's fine. We're having fun. You, you have to put all time living dead, uh, whatever, uh, you have to put an act together, you know, three, three comedians to go up on stage. Uh, who, who are you filling that lineup with? Well, I would probably use somebody old school like, uh, Pat Paulson just to round out the generations. He was a good, good friend of mine and uh, just a terrific entertainer. Uh, most people remember him from uh, Laugh-In, Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, and he always ran for president. And uh, the other act would be Dana Carvey because between his voice impressions, his music, and his gift with the audience, um, always entertaining, always fun, and, and could riff better than just about anybody. I think the the closing actor, and even though, I mean, I, I there's really no way to answer that, Jeff, because there's so many funny people right. I work with, and I wouldn't want to step on any toes, but one of my personal, personal favorites is a guy named Larry Miller. Now, if I showed you his picture, everybody out there in podcast land, Google Larry Miller, and you go, oh, that guy. He was in the movie Pretty Woman. I mean, he's done dozens of movies, dozens of TV shows. He just doesn't have that, quote, famous name. But Larry Miller is a huge success on TV and movies. But as a stand-up comic, from beginning to end, was one of the funniest people ever. And I think I related to it earlier. He didn't do jokes per se, he did stories. And these stories were sometimes 15, 20 minutes long and you're laughing your butt off all the way through. And then he could do a callback and just get you right back into it. He, he was amazing. But really, uh, there's been hundreds of people that I think are, are talented. Uh, I've been blessed to be able to work with, uh, I had Tommy Chong of Cheech and Chong fame on stage. He was amazing. Uh, Graham Chapman from Monty Python. And a lot of people don't know this. It happened early in uh, 1980. But uh, I actually had Tom Hanks on my stage for a full week. So, uh, And was he doing stand-up? Yeah. He was, uh, a lot of people uh, will remember his very first TV show was called Bosom Buddies. And Tom Hanks played a waiter that had to go up and do some stage time on one of the shows as a stand-up comic. So mm-hmm. he was from the Northern California area. He came to my club with his buddy Bob Saget. And Tom Hanks worked as the opening act all week. So that, And I didn't have to pay him. <laughs> it was great. But he was just getting ready for his TV shot on Bosom Buddies to do that character. Wow. He was practicing. And, uh, and of course... Nobody knew who Tom Hanks really was at the time. He, he, this was, you know, he was just another sitcom actor at the time. But uh, we were really blessed to uh, get to meet him and, and work with him that week. And we helped him uh, develop the material he ended up doing on the show Buzz and Buddies. But it was, uh, I've thrown out a few names here to give everybody the idea that even though that was a terrific question, who would be your best set? 
there's been so many people through my clubs and through my concerts, and I did two television series, that for me to say who's the best uh, is would be unfair and, and not possible. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I feel it. I actually was a guest on someone else's podcast, and they, they were asking me who my Mount Rushmore of comedians would be, and I gave That's them... A great- I, I get, put it though. Yeah, I gave him one answer, and luckily I was able to escape without giving the rest. Because I'm like, I got, I got my personal favorite. Who is your personal favorite? Uh, Doug Stanhope is my personal favorite. Uh, oh, okay. And, and he, he never worked for me, but I certainly know of his comedy. He's he's not for everyone, but he was the he actually was the one who I mentioned him in every podcast episode. I think um, not only did he send me a very encouraging email when I emailed him a year ago about how uh, for advice on comedy writing for like screenplay type stuff, uh, he replied to me in thirty minutes, which was way beyond what I didn't expect him to respond at all. Uh, but when I listened to his comedy, he he just has a way of being authentically him. Where like if you don't like if you don't like what I'm saying I don't give a shit. <laughs> it's, I'm I'm saying you know, just his uh, you know I am who I am. Get, you know some people have that uh, I, I'll say arrogance, but they have that confidence that they can do that. As a producer, um, I always and it's in my book, uh, and I want you to know this: never forget that you're there for the audience. Right, they're not there for you. Right. So uh, I'll tell you a quick side story where, where we don't want to take up all your time, but a very famous comic who you can still see on TV. Uh, he's been around for over 20 years. He's a political satirist, Bill Maher. Yep. Okay, Bill Maher, famous guy, very good on stage, very funny guy, um, but a bit of an ass off stage. Mm. And one time he was at my club and he worked for me a few times, but this last time, it was uh, the second night of the week, and he was doing his material, and he always talks about throwing out big names and politicians in Washington and throwing out you know, certain laws and stuff, basically talking over everybody's head. And the audience just wasn't getting it. He was just talking too uh, highbrow for him. And he stopped and said, you know what? You're all stupid here in Sacramento, and I don't know why I'm bothering, and walked off the stage. Oh, God. I fired his ass yeah. that exact minute and he never worked for me again and he's one of only two acts in my 40 plus year history of entertainment that I fired and I didn't pay him I mean I paid him for the two nights but I didn't pay him for the rest of the week because I was aghast aghast I was shocked whatever you want to say right that he forgot that those people paid and that his job was to entertain them he got it in his head that they were there for him and that is not the way it's supposed to be so anybody out there listening rule number one you're there for the audience they're not there for you no that's very wise words stand up comedy a try and just get on stage and kind of see what it's like it's a real good um, thing to do for your your self being and and good experience but if you are going to get somewhere and you're going to be a professional and you're going to do this uh, even as a, a paid hobby or as a, for a living, you want to really work at it. It's a job. It's not just partying all the time. You, you want to try to work clean. You want to uh, bring the audience into the show by talking about relatable stuff. And if you really work at it like you have with your writing, Jeff, very 
professional of you. Keep going on the writing. Keep drying that material on stage. Hone it. Practice it. Tighten it up. Uh, learn some punchlines, and <laughs> and uh, uh, and then you know follow up with uh, callbacks, and you'll 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 succeed. Awesome. Well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. Uh, before you go, um, give all your plugs where people can find you, what you're doing. So I have a podcast called uh, uh, Stand-Up Comedy. Your host and MC. As I mentioned, you can find it on just about every podcast directory. Be sure to listen and share with your friends. It's very entertaining. It's all stand-up comedy. No politics, no saving your life, no health things. It's just fun. And then I am just about to launch my own online comedy course uh, based on my book, Be a Stand-Up Comic or Just Look Like One, <laughs> which is... Uh, really gives the starts off in the beginning kind of telling you the scary parts about being a stand-up but once you get past halfway through the book there's some pure knowledge that will take you to uh quote unquote being a professional if you do what it says and so that online course will be launching by the end of the month and then i also have um the website www.standupcomedy or hostedmc.com be free to check it out there's pictures there's uh, uh, great information uh, you can pick up an old CD from my club uh, lots of things uh, and then the last thing which is uh, gonna be a, a little bit more time but it's kind of exciting is I own video of a lot of these uh, famous acts back with before they were famous and I'm gonna make that available in, in the uh, Video archive will be coming out, mm. and uh, it's if you like stand-up comedy and you want to see people like Dana Carvey doing Chopping Broccoli live on stage years before it was on Saturday Night Live, this oh, will wow. be your opportunity. Wow. Yeah. But thanks for letting me get some plugs in, Jeff. I, I just really want uh, people to know that uh, life can be tough. But if you find a way to laugh, it makes it a lot better. <laughs> Amen to that. Amen to that. Well, Scott, I, I really appreciate your time and uh, had a great time uh, chatting with you. Oh, thanks so much, Jeff. You guys, uh, you're doing a great job. I'm really uh, proud of you for getting on stage and doing your podcast. And just keep it up. You'll, you'll succeed. All right. Thanks so much, Scott. Bye. <laughs> Well, there you have it. That was so much fun. R. Scott Edwards. That was so much fun for me. Some amazing stories. Uh, and, and some of the legendary comedians that he uh, has booked and uh, hired in the past. Just that, that uh, boy, I hope you guys enjoy that as much as I did. Uh, if that's even possible. Um, and again, I've mentioned this before. He also uh, talked to me afterwards, wanted me to stay in touch. And, you know, these are good guys. I, I brought it up in the podcast. And, uh, he, you know, he talked about the uh, comedy scene really being a community. It's amazing. Uh, how How many people who have no reason to give me the time of day have not only agreed to come on the podcast, uh, which, you know, you can say they're maybe trying to promote their stuff, that's fine, but before and afterwards, they 
are so helpful and uh, and and kind with their time. Uh, they're always very positive and encouraging. Uh, so, anyways, I hope you enjoyed today's journey. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, if you are a fan of comedy, you absolutely will have loved some of these stories. The Dana Carvey in a hot tub story, I was afraid where that was going, but it went a very, very fun way. <laughs> but, all right, I'm going to wrap it up. You've heard enough from me today. Uh, thanks again to R. Scott Edwards for coming on the Jeff McAlino podcast. Remember to do all those things that I forget to remind you to do. But really, can you do me one big favor? If you have an iPhone... Go give me a five-star rating. It takes literally seven seconds. You go to, just go to where you can search on your phone and type in podcasts and click it and then type in my name and scroll to the bottom and it will say rate and review. If you write a review, I'll buy you a drink next time I see you. If you can prove you're the one who wrote the review. Um, see? See how generous I am? I'll spend like for eight seconds of your time. (laughs) Made that offer before. I kid. I kid. All right. I'm signing off. Till next time. Peace.